Wow, worship team, thank you. Thank you. Today's acapella day. I don't know if you caught that or not, but acapella, great job, worship team. And great job, you too. I could hear you singing up here. It just was a beautiful noise. Beautiful noise. In our worship this morning, we touched on our topic of worry on multiple fronts. We sang about God being our provider. We sang about God, God um, taking care of all of our needs. We talked about God being our refuge and our strength. We, we hit seriously on the theme of, at the end of the day, God will see us through. And we closed with the fact that, he'll, that we will be in his presence again. And so when you put all those things together, and that's what I'm going to try to do in the message today too, when you put all those things together, God must wonder why in the world do they worry about things? But we do. Before we get in too far, I just thought I'd bring you a little report on our Romania team. They left on Friday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon from the church for a 5 o'clock flight. Their flight left about 7 on Friday night. Uh, they had an hour and a half layover in Amsterdam, which they completely blew. And so nine people, they couldn't get them on the next flight out. Uh, they sent six of our, in Amsterdam, they sent six of our people to Munich to get to Bucharest, which wasn't in the plan. And three of our people, they split the team up, three of our people, Caleb and Jim and Lauren Fry stayed in Amsterdam. Now, mind you, they arrived at 9.30 in the morning. They didn't have a flight till 9.30 that night out of Amsterdam. They got in at 12.30 in the morning in Bucharest. So they had, they had a long day. I wrote to Pastor Christie at our sister church in Pitesh, Romania, and I said, you're going to have some tired cowboys and cowgirls on that team tomorrow. He texted me, Pastor Christie texted me. I had been texting with uh, Caleb as well, and um, they finally collected everybody. The two trips to the airport, hour and a half, two hours to go to the airport, two hours back, hour and a half back, uh, made two trips, collected everybody at four o'clock in the morning, their time, which is eight o'clock in the evening, our time. Pastor Christie finally wrote me and said, I have everybody here. Four o'clock in the morning, um, minus six checked bags. So, and then they got up at eight o'clock in the morning and went to church. And Pastor Caleb preached this morning. So, I, I imagine Pastor Christie has them running pretty hard this afternoon. Um, so, they probably don't have a chance to go back to sleep. But as we always say when we go to Romania, you can sleep when you get home, right? So that's, they have, they have the most recent best story for travel over there so far. So, but you know, I didn't detect any worry in Caleb's voice as I communicated with him. He, he, there was no hint, and if you know Pastor Caleb, I don't think he's a worrier anyway. So today's message doesn't apply to him probably, but um, no hint of worry. God's going to take care of this. It's just a little detour. It was a huge detour. So how do we define worry? 
Let me, I have some, I have some quotes up here. <clears throat> Let's look at them. Worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. Why worry when you can trust? It's like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith, and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. What does your anxiety do? It does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it does empty today of its strength. It does not make you escape the evil. It makes you unfit to cope with it when it comes. God gives us the power to bear all the sorrow of his making, but he does not guarantee to give us strength to bear the burdens of our own making, such as worry induces. Isn't that something? Worry. I'm sure we can all agree that worrying is a complete waste of time. John, my mic seems really hot. Um, I'm worried about it. I'm sure we can all agree that worrying is a complete waste of time. In fact, we could go further in the fact that it's, it's damaging to our emotional well-being. Physically and medically, it seems the evidence is clear that worry and anxiety are the root cause of many ailments. In some cases, worry causes imaginary diseases and conditions. It's like the wife who is constantly hearing noises in the kitchen in the middle of the night and finally, for the countless time, she sent her husband down to check on the noise in the kitchen at 3 o'clock in the morning, and there was indeed a burglar in the house. And the man of the house said to the burglar, Hello, it's finally nice to meet you. My wife, would, would you come upstairs and meet my wife? She's been waiting for you for 10 years. I'm a champion worrier. I always have been. And I, I probably should tag that with I always will be, but I, I, I hope that's not true. I can worry about money. I can worry about the future. I can worry about job performance. I can worry about health. I have a whole long list of things that I'm quite capable of worrying about. When I'm worried about my health, Sandy will always look up the symptoms on one of those medical sites, and usually it doesn't matter what the symptoms are. The diagnosis is you have about six weeks to live. So, yes, to answer your question, I am a hypochondriac. But I like to think that I've come by it rightly. My grandmother took worrying to new levels. I can still remember as a boy riding in the car with my grandpa and grandma. and She would always be on him. Selmer, we need to turn around. I think I left a cigarette in the ashtray. Selmer, I think I left the burner on. Selmer, I think I left the toaster plugged in. We need to go back home. Grandma was always worried, and Grandpa was always telling her to stop it. They were quite a pair. They were quite funny to watch. But as it turns out, worrying is not genetic. But if it was, I know where I got it. So we laugh and we make jokes about worrying, and about the worrier in our midst. But it's not funny. Worry is a serious issue. A full-blown anxiety attack can result in actual physical symptoms. Severe anxiety and worry can seize your mind and not allow you any rest at all. Worry can make your heart race. 
and make your mind get stuck in its hyper setting. Out of control worry can consume your thoughts, can consume your life. Yeah, worry is a serious issue in our life. So it's no surprise that Jesus continues the Sermon on the Mount teaching with insight into this topic, into this issue, into this sin of worry. Neither is it a surprise. Neither is it a surprise that he would spend time talking about this at the end of the money section of the Sermon on the Mount. We talked last week about material things. We talked last week about putting God first before material things and trusting God. It's no, wor- it's no, no, no surprise that it comes after that section on materialism and greed. Jesus doesn't mince any words when it comes to this issue. For him, worry is not funny. It's the dividing line between faith and fear. It's the dividing line between trusting in God or refusing his assurances. Jesus simply says, do not be anxious about your life. Fortunately, Jesus doesn't simply leave us with a command not to worry. He's not the psychologist, uh, was it, who was it in the skit, Tim Conway or somebody had the psychologist skit and some lady came in and was talking to him and pouring out her problems and he said, just stop it. That's Bob Newhart. Yeah, just stop it. I'm going to give you advice. I'm going to tell you right now, just stop it. Jesus says, do not, do not be anxious about your life. But he doesn't stop with just stop it. He gives us help. He explains to us the foolishness of worry, and he gives us a pathway back to peace and serenity. So that's what we're going to look at today. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Let me read from verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, could add a single hour to his span of life? And why? And I underline why in my Bible. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, 
not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Lord, we need to hear this, this word from you today. We, we can see that this is a serious matter with you. It's, it's, it's the dividing line between faith and fear. And Lord, today we choose faith. But I'm, I'm wondering if there's a person in this room that isn't above worry. We all know what this issue is. We all know what it is to worry. Well, we all know what it is to, to hit, let worry seize our thoughts. So by your Holy Spirit, speak to us. By your power, release us from the grip of worry. Lead us, Lord Jesus, by your word and your spirit to the peace that you have said just, just blows away any comprehension that we could have of it. Lead us into that peace. Lead us into the serenity of a still heart, a still spirit, that we might abide in your presence. In your name we do pray. Amen. So I'd like to look first at anxiety as a distraction. You see, context is everything. To help us understand the true nature of worry and anxiety, Jesus gives us five different questions in the text. The first question is verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And then he goes on at the end of the verse. He says, is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? But he starts with the command. He starts with the premise to not be anxious about your life. He gives us examples of what to eat, the shape of our body or the clothes that you'll wear. Look at those things. Don't be concerned about your life. So let's look at the command for just a moment. Don't be anxious. How do we define worry? How do we define anxiety? So I've got this written in the margin of my Bible. I suggest you write it too in the margin of your Bible, right there by verse 25. It's more than a thought. It's more than a thought. Write it right there in the margin of your Bible. The Greek word here means to be divided in mind or to be distracted. When we worry, we're dividing our, our minds between that which is good and pleasing and healthy with that which is consuming, damaging, and destructive. Worry goes by several words in the Scripture. Words such as to fret, without peace, to be distracted, concerned, troubled, weighed down, heavy-hearted, despairing. All those words are used in Scripture to describe this, this thing called worrying or anxiety. Now, we sometimes shake it off as something that we've inherited from our grandma. We make light of it by saying, well, I'm, I'm just a worrywart, so it's not a big deal. We elevate it by, by, by saying that, well, someone needs to be worried about it. Someone needs to be concerned about it. So we make it serious hung around me at all, you'll know that when we see God show up, when we see God do something just amazing, when we see God answer prayer, I'm often the first one to say, well, I'm sure glad I worried about that. Worry doesn't, doesn't matter. But worry at its core is a sin issue. It's a matter of belief that God will or will not look after my needs. Will he, will he carry me through or won't he? 
Worry takes God off of the throne of your life and instead seeks to find its own way to control my circumstances, to control the people in my life, to control the future. See, when I wrest control from God, I put myself in charge of my life, and that's disobedience. And worries in that category. As we think it through, we realize that worry takes a physical toll on us as well. Stress and worry bring issues such as high blood pressure, headaches, stomach problems, etc., etc. You know what the story is. Worry means that we're damaging our bodies. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Worry can also damage our public testimony. When worry controls our thoughts, faith is just pushed out of our life. It's, it's hypocritical for us to say that we're followers of Christ and, and that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign, that God's going to look after my needs. It's hypocritical to say then, to, to then worry about things. Jesus is clear. Don't be anxious about your life. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of trust in God. There's another important foundation in verse 25 that I, I think we need to look at. Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. Underline your life. Scripture is very clear that our lives are a gift from God. The very breath that I take, the next breath that I take is a gift that comes directly from God. We all know, at least in theory, we know, we know that God can shut that off when he wants to. I don't deserve the next breath. It's God's grace to me. It's God's gift to me. He knows the number of my days. It's a gift from God. He's the author of life. My very existence comes from God himself. Now, if we take that further, then my salvation, we know this is true as well. My salvation is a gift and a grace from God himself. We know that before Christ, we were dead in our sins. We know that we, if we're dead in our sins and we, we have no life, cadavers don't speak. No access to God. When we're dead to sin, it means, when we're dead in our sins, it means that we have a, a block, blockage in our relationship with God. We have no access to God. We can't hear his voice. We can't see him move. We can't, we can't acknowledge his existence. The Bible says that we're rebellious by nature when we are dead in our sins. I have no understanding of him. I have no understanding of the fact that his gift to me is life itself. When Jesus comes, when Jesus pays the penalty for my sins, I'm saved from death. I'm saved from my rebellion. I'm saved from my lostness. And I'm saved from my worry about the future through the work of Jesus Christ in him alone. So here's the question. Do not be anxious about your life. If he did all that, and then he walked away, wouldn't that be a cruel gift? When we buy a product, isn't one of the selling points the fact that the company stands behind their product? Have you ever had to buy new software because you call up the help desk, you call up, you, you, all of a sudden it's not working on your computer anymore, and they say to you, well, we don't support that software anymore. We don't have a fix for it. Have you ever searched for parts for some kind of machine or appliance only to find out that the parts are no longer available? They don't support it. 
brothers and sisters, God never stops supporting his work. God never stops supporting his work, and you are his work. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, referring to this work, this process of, we call it sanctification, the work of God in our lives to make us like Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says it like this, he who calls you is faithful. And what? He will do it. If we look farther in Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, look at verse 11. Jesus is talking about prayer. He says, if you, or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Context is everything. Worry distracts us from the greater work of God in our lives. A basic antidote to worry is to be ever aware of his larger work in our lives. Trust him for the small things. Jesus said it. Do not be anxious for the life. Okay. I'd like to look at anxiety as a life lesson. Jesus continues with the questions. Look at verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's the question. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Which one of you? The actual, actual original language understanding of that is, who can make themselves taller? The question here he's asking is, can you make yourself a foot taller? I don't think so. If that was possible, I would have done it a long time ago. But we understand the context of this says, can you make your life even one hour longer by worrying? That's the question. Romans 1 tells us that nature provides lots of lessons about God. Simply through nature, we should be able to learn lots of things <clears throat> about who God is. Jesus gives us a a, a, an example here related to anxiety. The birds. Look again at verse 26. <clears throat> Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. What do the birds show us? They don't store up in advance. They don't build barns. They trust God for their every need. But there's an important principle about worry here in, in this lesson about worry. First, they trust God for their needs, but the flip side of that coin is that they work hard. You see, this teaching on worry doesn't negate the fact that we're to work hard. doesn't negate the fact that we're to provide for our families, provide for ourselves. doesn't negate the fact that I'm to go out and, and, and get the manna, as to use the illustration from ancient Israel. I need to go out and pick it up. I need to go out and collect it. They work hard. 
It doesn't negate the fact that I need to be conscious of being prepared and not being a burden to the others. But the birds show us that our daily pursuits have no place for worry. Our daily pursuits have only a place for complete confidence in God. Diligence, joy, and contentment come with this kind of confidence in God. So if God provides for the birds, and he provides for all of creation, what does Jesus say? Aren't you much more valuable than them? Let that just sink in for a minute. Jesus goes on to ask why we worry about clothing, more of our daily needs. He compares it to the flowers of the field. I love flowers. The, the pictures you're seeing on the screen about flowers, they're all taken from our backyard. I love our flower garden that Sandy cares for each summer. Spring and the early summer brings lots of, lots of colors, lots of flowers. And walk around the yard, and I'm sure this is true in your yard as well, or go to the arboretum. Or look, don't, don't just walk by the flowers. Look at them. Every one of them is intricate in detail. Every one of them has colors that are rich and vibrant beyond anything we can imagine. I can't believe I'm talking about flowers, but I love flowers. I, I love buying flowers for Sandy, partly because I just like looking at flowers. They're beautiful. Jesus says, these flowers are more glorious than Solomon in all of his splendor, wealthiest man in history. In all of his splendor, imagine his castles, his purple robes, and imagine all that went with the splendor of Solomon and all of his wealth. God says, you know what? These flowers are more glorious than even these. But he goes on to add, this is an illustration from the day. When we were in Israel, we learned, when we were there last, last year, was it last year? It was just last year. The, the grass was lush and green. The foliage was beautiful. The flowers were out. It was absolutely gorgeous. But our tour guide said, hang around for a week or two. I don't remember what the time frame was. It'll all be brown. It'll all be gone, just like that. Jesus says, and he takes an illustration from the day, he says, the ladies, when they're preparing the meals, they'll just take those old flowers that have dried up. They were lush and green yesterday, and today they just, they're wilted. And when the, when the ladies need a little extra heat in their ovens for cooking, they just take those flowers and they just throw them in there. That's how worthless they are when they're like that. Because the question is, if God takes the time and the creative energy for something as obscure as a desert flower, would he provide all the more for you? That's the question. Jesus gives us lessons from nature as to the futility of worry. In what other ways can we draw life lessons from this? Take life lessons from nature, which we've already discussed. There's a life lesson in history. Scripture is full of remembrances. Celebration of Passover is a time of remembering God's favor to Israel. They still celebrate it to this day, all for the purpose of remembering God's faithfulness. 
The Psalms are full of trials and struggles, yet the psalmist always remembers God's faithfulness, always remembers God's strength, God's power, God's, God's grace to provide. I, I just have to read Psalm. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 6 and go back to Psalm chapter 77. Just have to read this. It's, if you go back and read the first part of Psalm 77, the psalmist is convinced that God has forgotten him, convinced that, and this is a natural thought process for all of us, convinced that he can't sleep at night, worry is, is racking his brain, crushing his heart. And then he comes to verse 9 and he says, has God forgotten to be gracious? How many of us have asked that question? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then he turns the corner and he says, then I said, I will appeal this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'm going to go back and I'm going to remember what God has done for me. That's his solution to the worry. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The first part of chapter 70, Psalm 77, he is literally spinning himself into the ground, worried, wondering where God is, wondering if God, has God forgotten to be gracious to me? Has he shut up his compassion and he no longer pours it out on my life? Where is God? going to remember what God's done for me. That's why it's so important for us, one, to be engaged in our spiritual life, to be engaged in our Christian life. We need to be engaged so that we see God at work in our life. I was talking to somebody in the last week or two, and we were talking about testimonies. I was at our staff meeting. We were talking about testimonies. And, and one, of the, one of our staff people said, you know, I have kind of a goody two-shoes testimony. I, I didn't fall off the wagon here or there. I didn't, didn't make these decisions, and my life just has kind of gone in a straight direction. I have a really boring testimony. Uh, is there such a thing as a boring testimony? No. Then as we discussed it some more, she said, you know what? As I look back at my life, I realize that God kept me from those things. At any point along my journey, as I look at my story, I realize that lever could have gone either way. I could have chosen this. I could have chosen that. And God somehow kept his hand on me and kept me going in this direction. You see, it's not a boring testimony. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness. And right there in that moment, she collected those thoughts, and she said, you know, God has been so very faithful to me. So important for us to collect our testimony, to collect our, our God sightings and, and, and store them up so that on that day, like the psalmist, when things are spinning out of control, that anxiety attack comes, when the worry is just consuming my thoughts, I need to stop. I might need to ask my wife, I need, maybe need to ask somebody else and say, can you help me remember God's faithfulness again? History. We learn from history. And then uh, tangentially, 
we, we learn from life. We learn life lessons from life itself. God gives us impossible situations to prove his power, to prove his faithfulness. How many times have you said, I don't know how I got through that? How many times have we remarked that only God could have turned that situation from the disaster that it was headed towards? How many times have we said that? We need to learn from life and how God has, has grabbed a hold of us and set our feet upon a rock. If we look for the lessons in life, it helps us to keep worry at bay in its proper insignificant place. Worry, by contrast, takes our eyes off of the Lord, takes our eyes off of his power, off of his strength, off of his sovereignty, off of his, off of his grace to lead me through takes my eyes off the Lord, takes my eyes off of his strong arm, as the psalmist says it, his strong arm of protection and provision. And finally, I'd like to look at anxiety as a pursuit. Verse 31 says this. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus asks the pointed questions, and he gives substantial evidence that worry is an absolute waste of time. It's a wasted effort. It's a sinful effort. Now he, he turns the corner and he says, therefore, don't be anxious. Remember, the entire thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is to help his disciples understand what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven what it means to live in the kingdom. You see, we are set apart in Christ Jesus. We are, we are set apart as his kids, as his people, as his, as his bride. We are of the world. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. Ours is a citizenship in heaven with Jesus as our Lord. So when Jesus sums up this teaching, he uses the word seek to do it. There will be a contrast between us as citizens of his kingdom and the world around us. What is the contrast? Jesus says, the Gentiles seek. The Gentiles are chasing after all these material things. They're chasing after all the, the temporal things. The non-followers non of Christ and non-believers in, in God, they're seeking after all these things. They're seeking to fulfill their needs outside of what God has for them, outside of God's power, outside of God's provision. Why do they do that? They do it because they don't know God. They don't know him as gracious. They don't know him as loving. They don't know him as giving. They don't know him as powerful. They don't know that he's above our circumstances and that he can fight for us, that he can provide for us whatever we need when times look desperate. <coughs> Beyond that, their own gods, small g, are fickle. They have to keep offering sacrifices to their God. They have to keep pleading with their gods. They have to keep begging to their God, please, can I have this? And we've talked about this before. They have to keep negotiating. <coughs> I did this for you. I made this sacrifice. I made this effort. I, I, did, I did this deed for you. I did it all in your name. So now, therefore, you need to give me something. See, they don't know the living God. They don't know that I, I don't need to negotiate a deal. They don't know that, that the deal's already been completed in Jesus Christ. They don't know that in Jesus Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness. They, they don't know that. 
So Jesus says the Gentiles, they seek, they look for these things. Their life is, is, is all, all, all bent towards pursuing these things. But you're different. You're different. You're citizens of heaven. You know that your heavenly Father knows you. Jesus says that. Your heavenly Father knows you need it. And you know that he knows. And he knows that you know. Okay, okay, keep going. Yeah. How, yeah. He knows your needs. Scripture says that he, he knows a word before it even rolls off the end of my tongue. He knows my circumstances. He knows my situation. He knows my, he knows my, my marriage. He knows my kids. He knows my job. He knows my, my, my environment at school or wherever it is. He knows everything. He knows what I need before I know I need it. <coughs> That's the difference. To seek means a passionate pursuit. It means a singular objective. It means a dialed-in focus. And Jesus says, our dialed-in focus <coughs> needs to be that of pursuing God, who has already pursued us. We need to seek his will, seek his kingdom, seek his righteousness, and place our total confidence in him. I want you to catch something. You see the bonus in his conclusion? Father, your heavenly Father knows that you need them, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Here's the bonus. And all these things will be added to you. The thing he just told me not to pursue, he's going he's gonna to dump on us anyway. But it's all going to be in its proper order. I'm not seeking those things, but God is going to be faithful to provide those things. Passionate pursuit. Where is your passionate pursuit? Are you focused in on who God is and his provision for your life? Or are you working yourself into a tizzy over all those things that we worry about every day? Too often I choose tizzy. Warren Wearsby summed it up like this. He said, just remember three things. And I like this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to steal it. Faith. Trust God. Verse 30, O you of little faith, trust God. Verse 32, Father, know God. Know that he cares. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Drill that down into your brain. Let it sink into your heart. Faith, Father, and Warren Wearsby, just to keep them all F, he says, first, put his will first. Seek his kingdom first. Is that easy to remember? Faith, Father, first. There you have it. That's why we come to the table. I'll call the worship team up here as we turn our thoughts towards communion. Scripture tells us that in Christ and his word, we have everything we need for life and godliness. 
He doesn't give us the command to, to not worry without giving us the, the tools to do it. He's promised that we can come to him. We can come to him with every burden, with every care, with every need. We can come to him with every worry. We can exchange it for his rest. So communion is a time of reflection. And we never run out of, we never come out of, we never run out of reasons to come to the table, do we? Because if you're like me, we're just not always victorious with this fight. And, I, and the more we come to the table, the more I'm just convinced that the reason God gave us this, this celebration, this invitation, is because we need to come and we need to stop the spinning. We need to stop the tizzy. We need to, we need to take a moment shut the doors, come in here where it's quiet, where we've prayed for the angels to protect us from the influence of the evil one, that this might be just a holy place for God to do his work in us. That's why he gives us the table. I want you to come. I want you to abide with me. I want you to put your... Stop looking over there. Look right here. That's the invitation of Jesus to come to the table. Come, be with me. So when we come to the table, there's, there's a couple of rules, and I think it applies here. First of all, we need to examine our hearts. Jesus said, don't come to the table unless you've examined your heart. Take a moment and just examine what's going on in your heart. And after confronting the teaching of Jesus in chapter 6, I don't think we have to go far to examine our heart. We don't have to go far to find out you know what, I really, I really haven't given that over to God. I really am clutching onto that as hard as I can. And I'm worrying myself to death over it. So I'm going to ask a question. Jesus asked five questions. I'm going to ask a question this morning. Are you, are you ready to give it up? That's why we come to the table. That's the question Jesus has for us. Are you ready to repent of it? To recognize that you have tried to hold onto it, to keep it held tight in your hand and not let it go, and to manipulate it and, and make sure I, 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 I direct the future, make sure I direct the outcomes. And God is saying, yeah, I want you to leave it right here. Leave it right here. And exchange it for my peace. See, a commitment to the things... A commitment to worry just brings chaos, an unsettled heart. A commitment to the kingdom of God brings peace, serenity, calming of the waves. We sang about that this morning. The one who calms the waves is the one who invites you this morning. So you ready to stop it? Repent? Recognize it? Turn another direction and say, God, my eyes are focused on you. Let his forgiveness wash over you. He said if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we can do what he says, seek his righteousness. Oh, brothers and sisters, I long that for you. I long that for, for my life. But how much more so does God long for it in your life? Come and be still.
Let's prepare our hearts.